If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is The Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? <laughs> like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. Well, hello, and welcome to today's episode, where I talk to my mom and dad at my kitchen table in Calendar, Ontario, at Lockton Farms, where I have... I've grown up since I was born in 1970. They've owned the farm since 1969. There's a famous song, 1969, the year 69. 69 is a great number. And my parents have been here since then on this amazing farm. And we've been talking horses ever since. Um, today, we talk about their roots and their background. And we find out what they think is most important to understand about horses and become magicians. Listen in. Thanks, guys. I'm just going to get started. You guys ready? Yeah, I'm ready. You've been ready. You were born ready. <laughs> um, okay. Thank you for joining us. Um, my name is Paige. And I wanted to introduce you today to my family background and to a project that my dad and I are starting. I come from a long line of horse people. My dad, Dr. Chuck Lockton, is a veterinarian. That's him playing cards in the background. Uh, my mom is a horsewoman. She grew up uh, with horses as part of her everyday life. And uh, my dad's also a storyteller. So he's got stories of horsemanship back through the generations into the 1800s. Um, and can give us quite a scope, I think, of history and range of human and horses coming together and evolving into something that um, we are calling horsecraft. And I'm going to ask him a bit about uh, his history today, how he helped come to that term horsecraft, and uh, I just want to introduce them and ask them... Um, some questions now. So I'm going to start with saying like I, this horses are in all of our blood, I would say in this family. Hey, mom, you were born with horses that were used in everyday life, weren't you? Yeah. When I had horses around me, they were for use, not pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, they were there to work and perform. And to me, that's a big difference today. People use them for pleasure only. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so is there a story from your youth that stands out of how you saw horses used regularly or uh, anything that particularly stands out? Um, I can remember my mother picking me up from school because the roads were filled with snow drifts and she picked me up with a horse and cutter. That would happen quite often in the winter. Um, I also remember I was eight driving a team of horses for my dad, picking up the sap from the trees. And horses were just always around, but they were there to be used. Yeah. 
Well, then you saw them used right up to the pinnacle of sport when you were supporting me. So you've seen the gamut too, right up to Olympic level three-day eventing. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, Dad and I are going to ramble on for a little bit here. And I wanted to thank you for answering some of our questions. I know this isn't your, your idea of fun. Before you go, is there any other story or highlight you wanted to share about your life with horses? Um, they were just always around. Um, I can remember uh, during Hurricane Hazel, I had ridden to a friend's place about eight miles from home when the hurricane started and my mom phoned the neighbor and said, tell her to get riding. And by the time I got home, it was just torrential rain. Uh, I put my horse in the barn and ran to the house, and my mom immediately said, you get back to the barn and look after your horse first. And that's what I did, was back to the barn, and back then we didn't have fancy horse blankets. I put straw all over the horse's back and rubbed it well, left the straw on the horse's back and put a blanket over it and the horse would steam up through the straw and dry, and that was before all these fancy blankets that everybody has today. Oh, yeah, you can get but, fancy blankets. Yeah, but I remember that clearly. You look after your horse first. And then once that was done, I went to the house, and she looked after me. So as the vet's wife, you saw a lot of different examples of horsemanship would that define horsemanship to you, that taking care of your horse first? Yeah, m most definitely. Um, watching horses come in that Chuck looked after in practice, I saw a lot of things that I didn't approve of. But most people thought of their horse first. Yeah, nice. Thanks, Mom. I'm going to... Uh, focus on my dad. It's my dad and I that have, thanks so much for doing that, that have put together um, a course. My dad has written his part of the book and I'm sitting on what to do with, um, with my part and the rest of it as part of a course that we want to do. My dad, uh, Chuck Lockton, grew up with horses as part of his existence in everyday life. Um, and is uh, a storyteller. So I want to start uh, just by asking him some questions. We'll let him tell his story. Thanks for doing this, Dad. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so what year were you born? 1939 uh, in southern Alberta. Uh, Keith was raised in southern Ontario in a rural area, and I was in, uh, off a small mixed farm in southern Alberta. Mm -hmm. Just near the foothills, eh? Yep. And um, so can you tell me a little bit about your history with horses and your knowledge as the storyteller of your generation of horses in your family history and um, how that's evolved through your lifetime? Well, my dad uh, came over from England when he was five years old with his family and uh, homesteaded in the foothills west of Nanton, Alberta, just along the Rocky Mountains. And uh, that 
family broke up and, and he ended up being raised by neighboring ranchers, uh, sort of like an orphan uh, life, but uh, became quite a cowboy and uh, did rodeo when he was young, but also really learned to be an excellent horseman and uh, was one of those men that were called upon to uh, do anything specialized like roping for a branding, healing calves for a branding, or in the fall when the cattle came out of the mountains from community pastures and were had to be split up for as many as 10 owners, um, he was called upon to uh, bring Goldie, his best horse, out to cut the cattle. Um, there's cutting stock cutting uh, competition now, but at that time it was very real and the cattle were pastured in the mountains where there was uh, brush for cover. Uh, cattle that were raised on the prairies didn't go through the summers very well because it was hot and dry and they were plagued by flies and no, no brush cover, uh, particularly uh, heel flies. And uh, the heel flies would chase them and drive them crazy, drive them into the creeks or uh, sloughs, we call them, little alkali ponds, uh, to try and get away from the flies. So in the summertime, they were taken to pastures in the foothills or in the mountains. And uh, usually a community pasture in the mountains, with, with my family at least, and uh, so we grew up half on the prairie on the little mixed farm and half in the foothills and mountain country with uh, summer pastures. It became um, a treat or a holiday to get back into the mountains or the uh, foothills country. And uh, to this day, it's still my favorite holiday. When I retired from veterinary practice, I spent 10 years in the uh, foothills in the mountains uh, west of Nanton working for a community uh, pasture concept, a cattle association with 10 owners and and at one time a thousand head of cattle are down from that a bit now over the years um, and um, 22 sections of land, a section is 32 sections of land, a section is a mile by a mile 22,000 acres uh, in the uh, allotment and uh, it was quite an experience because um, motorized vehicles weren't permitted into the area so everything had to be done on horseback or with a team and wagon and I had my own team and wagon and several saddle horses that were family livestock. It was one of the, it's the 10 best years of my life and uh, I didn't have any complaints about the good times I had at college or with my family, but still that, that 10 years in the mountains was, was the highlight so far. Nice, nice. So yeah, horses have been involved in getting to school. You rode to school on a pony when you were little, didn't you? 
time up for the day? We didn't regularly ride to school, uh, but when the storm, when there was a big snowstorm, the only way they could plow those country roads at that time was with a caterpillar. So it was two or three days before the roads got plowed and the school buses could pick us up. So when there was a big snowstorm, we did ride to school. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the life of your life, there were horses uh, then. Um, at the towards your twilight years, that park was only you could only manage it by horseback, right? You weren't allowed to bring motorized motorized vehicles in when you were running the um, operation at Willow Creek in your retirement. Yeah, back to horses needed to move things on a daily basis. It's like going back a hundred years and uh, starting all over again, and I loved it. Yeah. Now, our forefathers were remarkable horse people as well, right? I'm thinking of Arthur Ty with his mangled hand and yet his ability to handle, um, to be a teamster. Can you tell people, people don't even know what a teamster is anymore. Yeah, it, it, teamsters drive trucks now. The Teamsters <laughs> yes. Union is what truckers belong to. Right. But uh, the term teamster was... Uh, usually a gentleman, but ladies too, that drove a team or was made his living by driving teams. And uh, my grandpa Ty, uh, on my mother's side, uh, was a teamster, came out, started in the logging business in southern Ontario and then went west to BC and ran a freight outfit. He hauled like a delivery service, like Perlator now, but with a team and wagon, mm -hmm. and uh, had to go to the States to pick up freight, and uh, using a, a six-horse hitch, and uh, two, two and two, and, and scattered in front, and threw some mountain passes down into the States, and he used to tell about when they went around some of the turns in the mountain passes, the lead team would disappear. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know what else just disappeared? My stomach. Oh. You had to have your faith in the lead team. Oh. Yeah. If I had any testicles, they would have just crawled right back inside my body. But that story, I was there. I don't like those kinds of heights. That's amazing. So you've told stories of wrecks that our ancestors have had with teams. You've survived wrecks with teams. Um, as a veterinarian then, you, you uh, I think before I go on to that point, I want to maybe cover why you became a veterinarian and what if there was um, one story that made you want to become a vet. Well, uh, we... Dad got us a uh, pony stud, the first horse of our own, Shetland pony stud, and he was a cryptorchid, which means the testicles are retained in the abdomen. And in those days, we, we didn't even have a veterinarian and couldn't have afforded one if we did have. And so it was impossible to castrate him, and he was a mean little bugger. And uh, we had to keep him on a picket rope all the time, otherwise he just got out and fought with the other horses, and we had heavy horse teams, and, and my dad had some very good saddle horses, and uh, he'd pester the hell out of them until they'd fight back, and, and he, he just couldn't be trusted with them. There was no peace for them or him, so he was picking it out all the time. As we 
he was a smart little rat too, happy. And uh, he's dumped me in the water trough a time or two, uh, boiling up to the water trough and stop and drop his head and drop his head way down into the water to dump me off, on purpose to dump me off. It wasn't because he was desperate thirsty. Anyway, when we got big enough that Happy wasn't big enough for us anymore, we didn't think he was, although he was tough enough that he could have been, uh, my dad bred him to one of our saddle horse mares. And uh, that was an exciting time for me, and I remember watching all through the uh, pregnancy period, and I knew the day that the mare was bred, and I had it all figured out the day she was going to foal, and watching her for days, because she went three or four days past the due date, horses often do, and I was there when she foaled, and this little smoky-colored foal was bright, alert, and up on its feet, and I forced myself to stay back and not interfere because I'd been told that interfering might interfere with the union between the mare and the foal. So I, I stayed back out of the way, but I watched everything and the foal getting on its feet and the foals finally being able to nurse about an hour after it was born. It was up on its feet. It was actually up on its feet before the mare was. Uh, She'd lay down on her side to fold, which they often will if they're left alone, and she fold outside in a summer pasture and uh, watched the fold get up and, and then watched him grow up and uh, waited and waited for him to get big enough for us to ride him. And Dad said he couldn't ride him until he was two years old, that it would be too hard on their young bodies developing and that we weren't to get on him until he was two years old. Oh man, it was awful to wait. But before, when he became two years of age, he's a, a stallion, a young stud. And uh, by then my dad's health was failing. He never did fully recover from that stage, but he wasn't strong enough to handle the job himself. So he, he called some big strong cousins from the hills to come out and help him castrate the pony. And uh, of course I'm watching. I'm on the top rail of the fence watching with Hawkeyes, about nine years old. And um, it was awfully crude. They uh, used ropes. Um, a rope starts around his neck with a bowl and tie in the bottom so it doesn't choke him, then goes back over the shoulders and behind the hind legs, and these big strong cousins from the mountains pulled him down, and it, it didn't go easy. It, it, horses can actually make a kind of a screaming sound, and this dusty, we were smoky, we called him, the smoky-colored colt, he... Uh, was making kind of a screaming noise and fighting, and it, to me it was just horrifying. I'd never seen that. Uh, my dad was always did everything the gentle way, and th this was pretty crude. And uh, then, in the middle of the castration, they dropped some of their tools in the dust and dirt, and, and uh, hit a bucket of water there and swished it switched them around in a little bit, but then went on and did the castration. And, and uh, then 
let him back up on his feet. He stood there shaking, and, and I was just horrified. Uh, my old dog, Ring, our old dog, Ring, Border Coley, and I were buddies, and we went over and crawled in under the Carragana bush, and I had a good cry. It was, uh, we were sort of beyond crying at nine years old and, and raised rough on the prairie, but uh, I snuck off in the bush and had a good cry with that uh, pony after the castration. Worse than that, it started raining. My dad said the best thing is to take uh, Smokey down and turn him out in the summer pasture with the rest of the horses. They'll keep him moving to keep the wound from healing over on the outside before it's healed underneath. And um, that's the best bet for him. And my dad was sick enough that he went from that episode to bed and and uh, only briefly ever got up again from that. So he was too far gone, too weak to uh, pay close attention to what was going on. And uh, then it started to rain. It rained for about a week and... Uh, Dusty was down in the summer pasture with the other horses, and I'd try and get through the rain enough on a bicycle to get a look at him, but finally when I did get down and have a look at him, he didn't seem to be traveling with the other horses, so I thought I'd better check on him, and uh, he had castration infection and was swollen up from the scrotum, from the where the testicles were, had been, all the way up to his navel, and swollen an inch and a half to two inches deep with infection in the, uh, under the abdomen. Mm. And uh, I had a halter with me and uh, haltered him up and led him home. And it was about a mile. It must have taken me two or three hours to get him home because he'd only make two or three steps and then stop with his head hanging down. And I just had to get him home. I had to get him home and have Dad have a look at him and do what we could do. Uh, finally got him home. By the time we got home, he was moving a little better. The exercise had opened the wounds a bit, and there had been some drainage, and he was moving a little bit better. But once my dad got a look at him, he, he said, uh, there's nothing I can do. We're going to have to call the veterinarian from High River, which was uh, 25 miles away, something like that, and was nothing we'd ever done. And, and um, we got the veterinarian down. It was before penicillin. And he lanced the uh, area that was infected and told us to keep exercising the pony. Uh, but he said it was pretty hopeless. Uh, no antibiotics, not even, I, I guess not even sulfa drugs at that time, but it wasn't far before penicillin became available to the uh, uh, agricultural community, but it was ahead of that. And uh, eventually he got worse and worse, and so did my dad. He was sick in his bed, but he would get up out of bed go to the barn and hold warm compresses, compresses on, the, on the wounds and nurse that young horse until 
until he was too weak to do it. But the last time he went to the barn, it was about 10 o'clock at night. My brother and I slept in the bunkhouse and we heard dad going to the barn. And then we heard a bit of a struggle in the barn. We were supposed to be sound asleep. It was 10 o'clock at night or so. And my dad had gone out with the lantern. And I guess Smokey was dying at that time and uh, thrashing around it a little bit before the end. And we, we could hear this. And then I heard my dad come back through the swing gate with a spring on it, the people gate into the barnyard. And we heard the gate swing back shut and then silence. And then I heard my dad sobbing. It was, uh, that was formative. Yeah. Uh, that was a horrible experience, but it made me want to find out a way to do it better. Uh, and uh, was my first inspiration to uh, look at veterinary medicine as a, as a choice. Yeah. And actually, when I, when I practiced equine practice, my specialty was castrations. It's a little bit ridiculous, but it, it's mightily ridiculous. It's, you but made, they didn't suffer. You made I, the world a better place for horses and yeah. castrations. <laughs> I did them standing up, me bending underneath them, and you perhaps with a twitch on their nose was yeah. about the only restraint we used, and you'd usually slip it off when I wasn't looking. <laughs> if I could, but I yeah. froze them and did them standing. And if you can crawl under a horse and killed it, you know you're not hurting it. And they didn't die on me. Yeah. You made a world, the world a better place for gelding horses, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I wonder if that crew at uh, Daisy Collins' place that helped us with Malachi and that injury um, he sustained knew how connected it was to your history. Because we were watching Malachi who impaled himself on a fence post through his stomach wall up to but not penetrating the cecum. Mm -hmm. um, and you thought, well, this just means certain death. Um, a horse can't survive this and it's going to be just like my pony, right? And mm -hmm. sort of warned us of warning signs what to look for. Mm -hmm. And he was at the stage where he could only just shuffle a couple of feet at a time and we were instructed to keep him moving. You told, him, told us how important it was for the drainage of the wound. And we had a whole crew of people um, help to sort of keep him moving and shuffling and hot compresses, cold compresses and alternating treatments. And he lived through that. That was yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, but we had penicillin at that yeah, time and he, he got have. lots of it. Yeah, there was a day when... The, <laughs> but it, it sure was a reminder. Yeah. Exactly the same area of the horse. And well, and the, the, inf the infection crawled up his belly all the way to his chest. It's yeah. amazing he made it, actually. Yeah. You've seen lots of miracles in your lifetime, and you've seen um, a lot of kinds of horse people. So once you became a vet, um, I remember here as your helper, seeing you know the quarter horse people come in and how they did things, and the standard bred people come in and how they did things, and the Arab people, and there were all kinds of people, all kinds of horses and um, ways of being with them. And um, through all of that, um, you and I have 
tried to find some common threads about what defines good and then we got stuck here we wanted to define good horsemanship but we wanted a new word um can you do a couple of things maybe start with how we wanted to get to a new word and then we'll define um that new word and tell some stories so we didn't want horsemanship you Mm -hmm. wanted to get away from that right we tried uh we tried as many ways as we could to try and get a uh, not, not uh, unspecific name, and some of them that we came up with, uh, you know, you don't want to use horse personship. That's just so ridiculously awkward. Or horse man and horse woman every time you refer to it. Uh, horse stewardship was one of the ones that we thought might work. Uh, what were the other ones we thought of? Horse stewardship was one, but um, it really just came down to horse craft in the end, right? Horse craft, yeah. likely the best, the best non-gender specific term, yeah. but it's very difficult for me to use because I've used the term horseman and horsemanship for 80 some years now, hmm. and I'll probably have trouble not going back to that term. To me, horsemanship is the art of establishing relationships with horses to our mutual benefit. Mutually beneficial relationships with horses. The art of establishing those relationships I think of as horsemanship. I don't have any prejudice about that being male, the fact that it is horsemanship. Well, we have a book here, Xenophon, 400 years before the birth of Christ, wrote a book on, on horsemanship. It's the title of his book is On Horsemanship. Back then, I guess it was mainly soldiers, mainly men, that were the, the horsemen. Mm-hmm. And uh, that term has come down, that's 400 years before the birth of Christ. That that has that term has been used, so it uh, is very difficult for people not to use it. Mm-hmm. I I don't have any feeling of uh, that the ladies aren't horsemen. You're one of the best horsemen I know, and I I hope you don't take that as an insult because no. it calls you a horseman, and. I don't call very many people horsemen. There are very few of them really out there that 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 I think deserve to be called horsemen. But most of them are female. <laughs> they um, they seem to take to it better. Uh, in my experience, the best horsemen have been women. Uh, in in many cases, not all, but the the uh, majority of them have been. If this is resonating with you, and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines, all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses, and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all, I have a roadmap for you. Check out our foundation course. Consider it Horsecraft 101, from amateur to magician making magic with horses a unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection 
become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks, without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. You can get started at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, take a chance and remember anything is possible. Well, I think you've touched on a few things there that um, would explain that. Um, Oh, although I don't want to get into gender generalizations. Um, if we look at how horsemanship is evolving now, it came from war. So men practiced it. Men were cavalry officers and men were chargers. And um, the equestrian sport that I trained in, that in Canada most people don't know, <laughs> three-day eventing, was a test of cavalry officers and their mounts mm -hmm. to put them through their paces. So it came from war and was relegated to officers before it was opened um, as a sport in the Olympics. Its first couple of times in the Olympics, it was still only um, officers representing their countries. And it was what they did between wars, mm -hmm. meeting each other on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Like, that's astounding. I was mm -hmm. taught by those colonels and... Mm -hmm. um, Xenophon was a cavalry officer. Yeah. Uh, and so, it, interesting, in his book, uh, he mentions feeding barley. And I, I like feeding barley. I, I, one reason is I had sheep as well as horses, and I could feed barley to both the sheep and the horses. You have to be careful feeding it, uh, and the horses have to get lots of exercise. And with uh, the Xenophon book, of course, they were. They were exercised every day. They were used for military exercises every day. They were kept in standing stalls in, in, in his time in the uh, stables, and they were they for base or not bedding but uh, footing. They used rounded, smooth, rounded rocks about as big as your hands together um, that had worn smooth along a lakeshore somewhere from the the ocean or a, a lake washing against them and smoothing them out. And they paved the bottoms of the stalls with stone. It, the horses developed tremendously strong feet on that. Phenomenal. Interesting. But they weren't left standing on it forever or for yeah. long times. So they got lots of exercise. So a couple of things that stand out to me when we look at it as a sport that evolved from war was how gentle and systematic and quiet the approach was. The approach was not um, to rush. You know, it always had to, the cavalry officers depended on a relationship of trust in whatever situation they were in. So they had this beautiful trust between horse and rider in a situation that was war. And that kind of always blows my mind. Then it became sport. Then the people who came along before you were frontiers people and horses were moving vehicles and moving logs and plowing fields. Um, and now oh, the other end, when we look at um, one of you know my new mentors and heroes, Warwick Schiller, the Australian 
well, mm-hmm. he's not Australian anymore, but that's how I think we think of him. <laughs> um, and attunement. So he's seen a huge change in the evolution of how he trained Western horses and um, gaming horses and ranch horses in his lifetime that uh, might bring it into the realm of why women typically, you said, were the best horse craft practitioners. And that's because it's coming to about attunement and paying attention to the feels between horses and humans and, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of going into um, a realm that might have been known as a bit woo-woo or soft that women were more comfortable in Mm and how we were conditioned. Um, You were mentioning the sort of the evolution of horsemanship as it came down through the centuries and through the, through our period of my lifetime anyway, uh, it was handed down from one generation to the next. It was passed down in the military, but it was also passed down from parent to child, uh, from father to son. If I did. <laughs> in our case, it was from father to daughter. But uh, early in the 1900s, uh, the uh, tractor, after the war, when uh, horses were badly used during the war, thinned out because they were used by the military, and um, a lot of farm horses had gone away to the wars. Uh, After the war was over, the tractor kind of took the industrial horse out of the picture, the motor, the engine, the power, Uh, in different phases of life, took over for the power of the horse. And there's a generation in there, at least, where the knowledge did not come down from one generation to the next. I call that a lost generation in the art of horsemanship, horse stewardship. Um, Because... There just weren't horses for a phase through there. And when the horse population started to pick back up again, as as we became more affluent in the Western world and more readily could afford to have horses, we had, it was pleasure horses that came back. Uh, There are a few draft horses, but not anywhere near the percentage that there were. Mainly it's pleasure, and um, still horses worked on the ranches. We still, they still use them to work on the ranches, but <clears throat> not anywhere nearly as many. And uh, quads get replace a lot of horses, even on the ranches, I'm afraid, it's a shame to say. Uh, <clears throat> so there was a missing generation in there. Then... A, a lot of knowledge was lost, didn't pass down, and people started again getting interesting, getting interested in horses and could afford to own them and would buy one and do all kinds of stupid things because they did not get that from the generation ahead of them. They didn't get the basic knowledge. And what I am hoping we can do here 
is pass along some of that very basic knowledge that uh, cause the lack thereof that causes grievous mistakes, overfeeding horses, under-exercising them, closing the windows when they cough a little bit. They're coughing because they're getting dusty hay, likely, and uh, uh, closing the windows is the worst thing that you can do. A horse, horses evolved on the North American continent. The earliest uh, anthropological specimens of horses are found in the plains of Canada and the United States in the Great Plains. That's where horses originated, outside, every day, <laughs> outdoors. They need air, not, not the windows all closed yeah. up in the barn. Worst place you can put a horse is, well, there's worse places, but one of the bad places that people would put them was in a cattle barn. Now, that yeah. was pretty grim because the, the cattle keep the barn warm and and they don't need the air circulation that horses do with the huge lungs they have on them and um the horses would end up with the heaves with yeah. pulmonary people just didn't know obstruction. better people yeah. just didn't know better yeah and, was, and and thought they were doing the right thing it's nice and warm in the cow barn they're killing their horses <laughs> high humidity yeah. low air circulation and the horses would develop pulmonary emphysema uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, all those things, in, uh, what they call it in human medicine, but it's exactly the same in horses. And uh, I didn't see heaves where I grew up in southern Alberta. I didn't see it until I came to Ontario to college and, and then practiced in, in, this, in this area. Because the horses are raised outside, out there. they were at that time. Yeah. Now they're stabled horses out there as well. But at that time, they were raised outside. Yeah. They were outside all day, every day, year-round. I didn't know what the heaves was. So as a teenager entering the world of elite equestrian sport, with this as my background, I got into some interesting scenarios with coaches who wanted me to lock my horses up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... Uh, one of them was when we were in England, um, O'Reilly didn't bounce back after the trip um, for a variety of reasons. None of them had to do with whether or not he was getting turned out all night at night in a lovely paddock with plenty of shelter and a couple of goats and some a f another horse and a few ducks. Like, I mean, it was just the most idyllic English countryside paddock that he could ever live in. He had allergies to dust and shavings from closing them in barns in Canada. <laughs> and before, before we got them, <laughs> got him, by the way. And um, when, uh, at every jog up that we did, we started our day by presenting our horses in hand for a jog on the cement in front of the coach and to discuss with him the horse's soundness and program. And every single morning he would say, good morning, darling, <laughs> with his ruined French voice. Your horse, you keep him in last night? And every day I'd say, no. It, I would debate lying. And like, I could have just lied to him every day and said yes. But every day I'd say no. And he would lose it on me. And, <laughs> and I'd have to suffer through his rage. I'd have to end up nodding before he would let me go and agreeing to lock him up this night. Because he said the horse was running around and partying all night, essentially, and wasting his energy. And that's why he wasn't bouncing back. And uh, then the next morning, we'd do it again. We'd play this dance every day. <laughs> it was so 
hard on a 22-year-old's nerves, but I kept him outside, Daddy. <laughs> Just like he taught me. Let him grow his whiskers, too. And, you know, um, so back in the day, my dad used to really get upset when he would come down to the barn and see that I'd clip my horse's nose hair. So most of the time I'd leave them, but then when I'd go to Rolex or something, I couldn't be the only horse at Rolex with whiskers. I wasn't a big enough rebel. <laughs> And uh, you'd be so disappointed when I clipped O'Reilly's feathers around his feet. Oh, you know, he's, you're going to turn him out in the fall and he's going to get scratches now because they're there to protect them. you got to leave them. But I couldn't go to Rolex and be the only hairy horse, so I would clip him. And now, don't you know it, at the FEI, the International Equestrian Federation, there's a rule that bans at international events the clipping of whiskers. So yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um. If you clip the, if if you put a pebble, size of an acorn, in a horse's feed bin and it has nose hairs, it'll sort that pebble out. If you chop off his nose hairs, he'll end up cracking his teeth or cracking the pebble. He'll get it in his mouth because he can't sort through it, and those. Nose hairs are tactile, uh, very, very sensitive. It's part of equine communication, perhaps that we don't understand as well as we should. Yeah. But uh, those nose hairs are important to horses. Yeah. So are the hair in the ear. <laughs> Keep the flies out of the ears. Can I tell another story? <laughs> I wonder how long people have for storytelling. This one is about Susie Maloney. So we were young people in Florida. Susie and I were the only two event riders on the jumper circuit at that point um, in Wellington, Florida. And we went to train with James Lala and others, whoever we could get lessons from. And Susie would just ask anyone she passed, including Conrad Homefeld. And um, so Susie Maloney was getting a warm up for a jumper class with Joe Fargis one day, who rode in the 84 Olympics and 88 Olympics and medaled and is this big superstar. And um, in the middle of, you know, like serious concentration and her going back and forth over this jump, he goes, Susie, Susie, stop. Would you come here? And he calls her over. He says, Susie, there are so many things in our lives and our horses' lives that are outside of our control. But personal grooming is not one of them. <laughs> Susie, you have to do something about your horse's ears. And she used to let her horse's ears get nice and hairy. Lower for it. <laughs> and his nose. And he was like, he gave her this dressing down about, you know, the next time he saw her, he, planned, he expected those ears to be shaved. And then he's like, okay, now come down to that oxer one more time. And he just carried on like it didn't. <laughs> she came back and told me that story about her warm up for a big jumping class at with the big time star. So now I wonder how he feels about it. Now the FEI says you can't, well, they they're, haven't said anything about ears yet, but they, they're all about the noses. So we cover some of this in this course that I have planning to come out someday. Today I wanted to give people an uh, idea of where we come from and how we look at horsecraft from um, every, it, it, not discipline specific, um, just as horse lover specific, um, my why was I, I, I thought since there isn't regulation in this industry, 
if there was somewhere that people could get science-backed knowledge of how horses thought and why, then they would be able to look at the experts in their area and go, hmm, does how they manage horses make sense? Is this what horses need? And they'd be able to make good decisions when they're an adult amateur taking up the sport, mm -hmm. trying to find, and everybody goes, oh, you should do it this way. Oh, you should do it that way. Like, oh, come on, really? <laughs> um, we don't care whether you ride it forwards, backwards, or sideways, or you want to drive behind it or just play with it. Um, there are certain things that if you don't know this about horses, it's going to be at your peril. And if you do know this, you'll look at how you handle them differently. And so one of the ones that we'll delve into later, but I'm just going to mention the word now because this one always makes my dad's eye twitch, is polyvagal. <laughs> polyvagal theory. Oh boy, that's too much knowledge. <laughs> too much information. And that's something we'll touch on in the future, but it was one of those things that I understood how a nervous system worked. And for not only horses, but for humans and, and then victims, how a nervous system can automatically put you in a shutdown mode where you can't move or speak for yourself and what that looks like for horses and humans. And that some of the methods that people use that use, I'm using finger quotes now, air quotations, natural horsemanship techniques that are better than what you witnessed in the old days where they flipped horses and they broke horses and they tied legs up. You know, we aren't beating them, we aren't hurting them. But some of these techniques depend on putting a horse's nervous system into a flooded state. And people who don't know that will go, well, it ain't hurting them. You know, I, and it's better than what my grandfather used to do. Um, and they'll cling to these methods that they may use to their peril particularly if they want to use those horses with the vulnerable public for equine assisted therapies and other modalities. So it's kind of my mission to make people understand it because I think when they do, they'll go, Oh, that's why I shouldn't do that. And then we'll give them a way to move forward. So one of our biggest things is we owning our mistakes and it's living by Maya Angelou's principle and, and her, um, saying was do the best you can until you know better and then when you know better do better and so that's our intent to to share what we've learned and some stories um and some um things maybe we wish we could have done better and we'll keep getting together to do this for as long as you guys want to listen um before we end today dad is there anything you want to add about horsemanship through your lens and 100 years? Uh, one old cowboy that I knew pointed out to me that the cowboy way isn't the only way. Ali Streeter, that there are other ways to do things and there are other forms of horsemanship. And he could go to a drawing contest or watch draft horses work and the the teamster aspect uh, could could go to a horse show and and enjoy the sport horses jumping horses and uh sport horses he did not get grooved on one 
phase of horsemanship. In fact, he owned an English saddle. He mainly used it because occasionally horses would get a warble. Warbles are generally in cattle, but sometimes they'd come on a horse and usually up over the withers and he could put an English saddle on them. When So uh, Allie was one of my early heroes and uh, he enjoyed all phases of horsemanship and he sort of got that through my head. Uh, if you tell me you're a horseman but you only ride a western saddle, give me a break. Mm -hmm. uh, that just doesn't cut it. They're, they're all, there's something in all forms. There's only one discipline that bothers me and that's show ponies where their tails are operated on to stand up straight with an ugly operation and yeah. then crop beside so there's hardly any hair. There's just a tuft hanging down and the tail goes straight up. Yeah. That is cruelty as far as I'm concerned. That's the only phase of, horse, of all the types of horsemanship that I've seen so far and that I don't like. Yeah, the only one other one I can think of is soaring. Anything they do to cause pain to change a gait. So there's still yeah. some practice of that, unbelievably, in the horse world. Um, although, you know, hopefully in our lifetime we'll see the end of that nonsense. Mm -hmm. It is part of our goal to talk about how horses think and learn and behave. And that's why ending practices like this are part of why my dad and I talk about what we do and want to spread the magic of horsecraft. We want people to understand how horses think and learn and react and behave. And that's what motivates us so that humans, when they know better, can do better. I continue to explore from what I consider my PhD in pressure and release as an international equestrian and using traditional pressure and release methods with horses um, to um, hold them for veterinary procedures and in emergencies. Um, and now I am exploring our positive methods, um, positive reinforcement training, um, and other things in my own backyard. So we talk about all of these things on the podcast I hope you enjoyed. You can check out the course now at themagicofhorsecraft.com from amateur to magician, making magic with horses. And I hope you'll join us for more discussions as we talk about what horsecraft is and isn't and how we can learn better and do better. Thank you for being there. If you like it, like and share. And if you don't, let me know why. You know, maybe we can evolve together. You never know. Thanks for being there. Hey, you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at The Magic of Horsecraft, where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses, at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, we all want the same things. 
to be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance. <laughs>